Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hey guys, how's it going? Um, thank you so much for coming tonight. We're so excited to be down here in LA. Um, and we are so excited that you're here to help us celebrate our 50th issue. Um, and we'll cut right to it. Um, our first reader is Carson Mel. He is currently publishing a serialized sci-fi novel, Field Notes from Dimension X, which we have copies of here tonight up by the front if anyone wants to pick up a copy, highly encouraged. Um, parts one through three are also available on his website. His feature film, Another Evil, is available on iTunes and Amazon. And the first season of his cartoon series, Tarantula, debuts on TBS sometime in 2018. So help me in welcoming Carson. <laughs> Hello everyone. Um, so this is uh, all the stories in here. This issue uh, are super short. I'm going to read mine. I think everyone's reading their super short stories. So it's kind of flash, flashish fiction. I don't think it's full on flash fiction. I think it, that has to be shorter. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, my story is called The Truth. It was love at first sight. He was six feet tall, slim and strong, with thick, wavy black hair. He smoked cigarettes and laughed loudly and played the guitar. He slapped his friends on their backs and got more ice and said, hold on, hold on, as he picked out the next record. It was a real nice song. Jane walked up to him and introduced herself as he read the record sleeve. He looked right past her, took something out of his pocket, handed it to a fr passing friend. What's your name, she said. Marco, he said, still not looking at her. He reset the needle on the record. Mandolins jangled. Then he looked down at her. She was a small woman, 5'2 and skinny, but her eyes were powerful and dark. She didn't like most men. It was really rare for her to be attracted to someone, and even more rare for her to just walk right up and introduce herself the way she'd done just now. And once he started looking at her face, he couldn't stop. He told her as much, and they got pretty drunk together and went back to her place. He was living on a friend's couch at the time, and they made love. After they'd finished, he took her face in his hands and, stared, dead in, and stared her dead in the eye. I'm a liar, he said. You should know that about me. Sometimes I tell the truth and sometimes I don't, but I don't care about the truth either way. Maybe it's a defect in me. I don't know. But I've been this way all my life. I like you, I like you a lot, but that doesn't change who I am. I just want to tell you this up front, right now, tonight, that from this moment on, you won't be able to trust a sing single thing I say. Do you understand? How do you lie, she asked. About other women? About everything. And that's all I'm going to say, and I'll never say it again, but it's the truth. She stared at him for a long time, stared into his blue eyes, narrowed and intense, and kissed him. They made love again and fell asleep. She woke to him cooking breakfast, eggs and bacon and instant coffee. They ate a little bit of it. Her head was throbbing from the hangover. What you said last night, she said, about the line, what was all that? 
He looked up at her. His eyes were wide and calm, nothing like they'd been the night before. I was just kidding, he said. I'm sorry. I say crazy things when I get drunk. Well, you didn't sound like you were kidding, she said. You sounded really serious. He shrugged, smiled. I'm just a weirdo. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't freak you out. You kind of did, she said. Well, sorry. Do you want me to leave? She looked at him for a long time. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just you freak me out. He smiled sadly, got right up, and walked to the kitchen door that led to the back patio. It's fine. I get it, he said. I'm weird. He opened the door, and then he paused. I do like you, though, really, and I don't like a lot of people. Everyone says weird things sometimes. He didn't call her the next day, the next week. She thought about him a lot, about the way they'd made love. One day, a vase of exotic flowers appeared on her doorstep with a card that read, Weird flowers from a weirdo. Sorry. She put them on her kitchen table and stared at them. Then she picked up her cordless phone and called them. Every few months, every few years, she would question him about that first night together. He'd get furious. Oh, Jesus Christ, this again? I said one weird thing. If she ever caught him in a fib, she'd bring it up. Everybody fibs, he'd yell. Everybody tells little white lies. They had three children together. He was a great dad, attentive and kind. One summer, a hiker discovered a human femur in the woods behind their home. <laughs> Police detectives came and found a few more human bones. They did tests and discovered that the bones belonged to a young woman who'd gone missing the summer before. Marco was questioned simply because of proximity. Jane watched through the glass, watched him charm them. He shook their hands and patted their backs and walked them to the front door. When Jane walked in, Marco was staring at the closed door with a serious expression, holding his elbows. He felt Jane's eyes on him and turned and said to her, Poor woman. Three years passed. It was their youngest sixth birthday, their oldest was ten, and when Jane, when Jane found Marco smoking cigarettes on the front porch, away from everybody, staring out at the street with a very intense expression, an expression she had seen on his face only once before. Something wrong, she asked him. Nope, he said. The next morning he was gone. No note, no nothing. But Jane didn't need a note to understand. The whole time she'd known him, she'd known this day was coming. Thank you. Next, we have Corinna Valianatos. Corinna Valianatos's short collection, My Escapee, won the Grace Pally Prize for short fiction and was a New York Times book review editor's choice. She lives in Southern California and teaches in the University of Tampa's low residency MFA program. Hi. Thanks for coming, and Claire, thanks for taking this really short, short piece, which is short even by short standards. So, um, It's called Internal Life. Our neighbor's car is large and shiny. It seats like padded pedicure chairs. I would never drive a car like that, but I spend more than $200 on shoes and cry when my husband dis discovers the charge on our credit card. Oh my God, I love this gun, our son said the other day, playing a video game. And I said from the doorway, I feel I've lost my grasp on this family. Hot wind shakes the spear-shaped seeds from the female ash tree onto our yard. Friends invite us to dinner and introduce us to the other guests, a couple and their three children. The woman has the best job in the world, our friends say. Can we guess what it is? 
hotel room reviewer, our son says, and they say no, though that would be good. Astronaut trainer, puppy walker, flower sniffer, like for perfumes? They're shaking their heads. Give up? She makes stuffed organs, they say. We don't understand. Yeah, like anatomically correct stuffed lungs, uteruses, hearts, stomachs. She sketches them out and gives them personalities, approachable ones mostly. Then they're manufactured, the details get a little fuzzy here, and shipped all over the place. Hospital gift shops and gynecologist offices, preschools. We make interested noises, but I'm distracted. I guess the heart is ballsy and unsubtle and the liver's a hard worker, but what about the spleen? Its dignity's in its unknowable quality, it seems to me. Grilled swordfish is served, children laugh and scream. Our host gets drunk and the conversation bends toward candor. The question of why we have just one child arises and when I tell them that my blood formed a clot that stretched from my pelvis to my knee, they seem so relieved. That there's a reason, I mean. And anyway, I say, I didn't want to subscribe to the cult of motherhood and they nod, they nod, they like this phrase. The stuffed organ maker's daughter call, calls our son daddy. Daddy, daddy, she says, running to him and encircling his waist with her arms. He is 12 and she is 6. She presses herself against him and he laughs it off for a while, but she won't let go. Finally, he removes her roughly and I scold him for it. The stuffed organ maker tells us that at school her daughter gets so nervous about seeing him she has to throw up. Her husband leaves with their littlest and later we drive her and her other two home. Our son rides in the hatchback where we allow him to remain even after they debark. The pinprick shine of dashboard lights, the body's shapes waiting inside. I can feel them sometimes, soft and slipperly, slippery, delicately indefatigable. Thanks. The next reader that we have is Sarah Walker. Um, Sarah Walker is a writer living in Los Angeles. Her piece is a tribute to her lifelong fandom of Yukon women's basketball and dogs. I think I win the prize for most impressive resume. So, um, Does anyone know who Yukon women's basketball is? Or, you know, undefeated for four years? Okay, great. Awesome. Uh, the head coach, you should know this, all the, this information before you begin. The head coach is named Gino Ariyama, and the stars of the team are Katie Lou Samuelson, Gabby Williams, and Nafisa Collier. Don't worry, this isn't a test, it's fine. Uh, so this is called Gino Knows I've Got the Goods. I recently got a phone call from a number with an 860 area code. I live in LA, but grew up in Connecticut, so thought it might be an old high school buddy. But as I picked up the phone, I thought, I don't have any old high school buddies, nay, only enemies. Fortunately, I was relieved to hear an instantly familiar voice in a non-high school way on the other end. Hello, Sarah. It's Gino Ariama. I can't say I'd been expecting this call. Then again, I had not been expecting it. I always knew that one day, Gino would find me. 
In his smooth Philadelphia accent, he got straight to the point. I want you to play post for the Yukon Huskies next season. Pagino, I said, I'm 35. <laughs> I haven't played basketball in 14 years. <laughs> Look, Sarah, said Gino, you know you've got the goods. I saw them when you played at my camp when you were in sixth grade and won a game of knockout. Now I'm telling you to knock it out with a false modesty and come play for me. <laughs> that silver tongue. He was right. <laughs> of course I knew I had the goods. I had been sitting on the goods, on my couch, eating cocktail nuts, scanning Instagram for precocious animals, mentally preparing for the looks I would get from my future teammates, Katie Shooty Lou, Nafisa The Rock, and good old Gabby Rebound, the nicknames I would give them, as I walked into the gym at stores. They wouldn't want to believe that this older gal with the creaky knees and a two-inch vertical was better than them, but they wouldn't have to. They'd see. Oh, how they'd see. I sighed. There was no use in resisting. It was inevitable. So I tossed my tin of cocktail nuts out the open window for some lucky person to find. It was all protein and complex carbs from now on. When do I start? Now, he said. And then he turned into a dog. <laughs> but not a husky, a Pomeranian with glasses. Then the Pomeranian handed me a phone with a paw that sported 11 national championship rings. <laughs> Answer it, he whispered. I woke up to the phone ringing. Sarah. It's Gino Ariama. <laughs> you stole my windbreaker from the bus last time we played at Hartford, and I want it back. Never, I cried, clutching the windbreaker tightly around me. On the other end, I could hear Gino chuckling. That was a test. Now I know you've got the goods. <laughs> I want you to play post for the Yukon Huskies next season. I sighed with relief, even though I was totally confident. I had the goods, and Gino knew it. But I had more goods than even he knew, for I had also stolen his warm-up pants, which I packed in my bag and headed to Connecticut. Thank you. The next reader we have is Kevin Moffat. Kevin is the author of two story collections and a collaborative novel, The Silent History. He teaches at Claremont McKenna College and in the low residency MFA at the University of Tampa. Whoa, there are a lot of you who showed up. Oh. You know you're getting old. I knew the font would be too small in the McSweeney, so I had to print it out myself in this 17-point font. It goes up one every year. This is called On Screen. I have the saddest superpowers, an allegiance to birds, a marathon threshold for boredom. I can make a body part ache just by thinking about it. There's a squealing in my ears and I'm afraid to ask my wife if she hears it too. My wife, she's a much more natural person than I am. She smiles when she's happy, cries when she's sad, or when she's frustrated, or nostalgic, or really happy. I never cry. It's become a problem. My son listens to a song by a retired football player that goes, it's all right to cry. Crying gets the sad out. And he's decided that if it's all right to cry, then it's not all right to not cry. Why don't I ever cry? I tell him I cry all the time, just not out loud. In fact, I say I'm crying right now. This doesn't satisfy him. No matter how much I explain that crying isn't like a train with a set schedule, something you can predict, he wants to know when I plan to cry next. 
Would you cry if Otis died, he asks. Otis is our dog. Of course, I say. Would you cry if you woke up with feet for hands? Without a doubt, I say. Would you cry if you found out you were just a pretend person who disappears when people stop believing in you? One night, tired of his badgering, I tell him that I will cry on the afternoon of October 18th. After school, I'll be waiting, and while he's eating his snack, I will cry like he's never seen me cry before. Sobbing, shoulder heaving, the whole stinking opera. You'll probably have to call the fire department to stop me, I tell him. He runs downstairs to tell his mom. He runs back upstairs and circles October 18th on his wall calendar and draws a neat little teardrop inside the circle. Is it okay if we film it, he asks. <laughs> my wife thinks my plan is ill-conceived. She says I'm just bearing another time capsule of disappointment for him, like when I told him the game Candyland was based on a true story. But October 18th is four months away. Plenty of time for him to forget about our deal. I say, you know how kids are. One minute they're obsessed with spiders and tractors and the next they're onto pirates and ancient weaponry. Remember that phase he went through where he always wanted to pray to our ancestors before he ate dinner? That lasted over a year, she says. I can't even remember the last time I cried, I say. I used to cry all the time. Fireworks, Christmas music, mirrors, everything used to make me cry. Cats, harps, swastikas, the way Burger King smelled, rain, watching my father shave, puppets, oil stains, Tip O'Neill, clocks. Start practicing, my wife says. It will come back to you. <laughs> the morning of the 18th, my son wakes me up before dawn and says, today is the day. He crawls atop me and lies with his back flat to my chest. He's impossibly warm. Ever since he was an infant, he's loved lying on top of me, and ever since he was an infant, I've thought the same thing when he does it. I am the grave, and he is the marker. And then, if I don't die before him, I'll die very soon after him. He sings, I know some big boys who cry too. While he's at school, I watch old movies. Suffering detectives, cowboys riding slow horses, secretaries gently performing on typewriters, dogs. I start noticing the dogs. All of them are long dead, and their puppies and grandpuppies also dead. Otis lies ghost face and asleep on his mat, his name monogrammed to it in cursive, even though he can't read, and plus he's the only dog in the house. The bony terrier on screen scampers his way through a movie, and he, the dog on screen, has no idea. He hops on his hind legs, following a hapless prospector around, wanting to be fed. The actor acting and the dog blithely being a dog. My chest tightens. The dog never, ever breaks character. He isn't aware of an audience beyond the man in front of him who finally tries to feed him a steaming turnip with which the dog sniffs at and refuses. It's perfect, award-worthy. Tears form and fall and I let them. The prospector tries to reason with him but the dog won't be reasoned with so he feeds him his own dinner and eats the turnip himself. I cry and cry, wiping away tears with the sleeve of my t-shirt. I feel agreeably pathetic until I peek at the clock and realize my son won't be home for two hours. I try to ration the sadness, keep it cupped and lit like a flame, but it's brittle, a half inch long. The second the dog is off screen, it's gone. I spend the rest of the afternoon doing research. I Google how to cry on command and find lots of websites written by and for amateur actors. <laughs> Smear some mentholated rub under your eyes, dab some onion juice on your fingers. They all agree that you have to think of something sad. People you love being dragged to their deaths. People you love crying for help in a faraway land and you not hearing them. A bad actor, one site says, cries with every part of his body. A good actor can cry with none at all. 
When my son gets home, I hand him a plate of sliced mango and say, I will now commence to cry. <laughs> I lean on the counter, clear my throat, and swallow a few times. I imagine an impatient conductor holding his baton in the air. My son positions his stool right in front of me, his lip lips wet with saliva. He chews and chews, and for some reason, my thoughts don't latch onto someone I love, or even the dog in the movie, but a bird. A tiny bird I just read about that absorbs its own guts to make room for fat, and then flies west across the Atlantic without stopping, regrowing its insides along the way. Which is vaguely sad, but mostly, I don't know, kind of inspirational. <laughs> My son waits, and I imagine the bird getting tired as it reaches the shoreline, and I kind of rhythmically hunch my shoulders, priming the pump. The bird sees the Statue of Liberty. It's a tiny bird with brand new insides, but it knows what the statue means. It can feel liberty weighing down its wings because liberty is heavy, and it begins to lose altitude. I squint and make some pitiful noises. The bird collides with a concrete retaining wall, sinks into the grimy water, and falls slowly to the seafloor. I rub my eyes in hopes of squeezing out out some tears, and it works. I'm crying again, sort of. It feels slightly pornographic, not quite fake and not quite real. My son comes over and consoles me. He rests his hand on my waist, tells me I'll feel better when I'm done, because he always feels better when he's done crying. I used to watch him sleep sometimes. I'd stand over his bed like a ghost haunting the remains of my old life, too stubborn and attached to pass into the next world. I would watch until it felt like I'd disappeared. One time, my son started laughing in his sleep, laughing so hard he woke himself up. Imagine, when he opened his eyes, he saw me standing there, and he didn't ask what I was doing. He just closed his eyes on me, and I was gone. Thanks. Our last reader tonight is Brian Evanson. Brian Evanson is the author of a dozen books of fiction, most recently uh, a story collection called A Collapse of Horses out with Coffeehouse Press and the novella The Warren. He lives in Los Angeles and teaches in the Critical Studies program at CalArts. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and if you haven't seen it yet, you should definitely take a look. Um, it's a beautiful issue. There's an amazing number of writers. Uh, the stories are tiny but powerful, and uh, that seems like a good combination. I'm going to read 18 of my stories tonight. Um, you think I'm joking, but I'm not actually. Um, so I, uh, the pieces that I have in here um, are pieces that I co-wrote with uh, Jesse Ball. Um, they're called uh, The Deaths of Henry King. And Jesse and I have been looking for something to collaborate on for a while, and, and one day he, he texted me and said, one, his name is Henry King, two, he dies. And uh, I sent him back uh, a short piece in which Henry King died, and then he sent me a short piece in which Henry King died, and we just kind of went back and forth with those until Henry King had died so many times that we felt like we'd done enough. Um, so uh, I'm going to just read the first uh, few of those deaths. Oh, also there's illustrations by Lily Carre, who's a really terrific um, illustrator and cartoonist and, and comic, uh, a graphic novelist um, that you'll see through these, and they're usually just pictures of Henry King dying. <laughs> One. 
Henry King woke up with a hammer partway through his head. Someone pulled the end of the hammer out of the hole and then brought it down again, causing Henry's body to shake a little all over, especially at the extremities. <laughs> Two. Henry King was asked to meet a friend in a park. He went there and was killed. That same day, a bit later on, someone left an envelope on his doorstep. It wasn't a very fi fancy envelope, yet neither was it the absolute cheapest kind. Three. Henry King signed a paper that said, I want to die. On 42nd and 5th, a bus ran him over, and he was so unremarkable, even at that moment, that a dozen more cars hit him before anyone thought to stop. <laughs> Four, Henry King was burned to death in a house fire, although many others were saved. There is still someone in there, said the fire chief. Five, Henry King fell from an open window. A girl was telling a joke about a platypus. It was an extremely funny joke, and many kept laughing, even when they saw what had happened. <laughs> I'll say, too, that Jesse and I no longer know who wrote which pieces. Um, six, but I wrote that one. Um, Henry King stayed late at the factory. His legs were caught in the machinery, and it, it embarrassed him. The factory was sold by the owner that night, and no one ever came back onto the premises, leaving Henry to death by starvation. And that one's illustrated. Seven. Henry King accepted a drink from a wild-eyed girl underneath a bridge. Some minutes later, she was rolling over his body and removing an antique watch, watch the gift of his grandfather. Eight. Henry King climbed a ladder, and then it began to rain. By chance, all the rain went into his mouth, and he drowned before he could fall. <laughs> Nine. Henry King couldn't breathe. His throat had closed. He ran to the window and waved to someone outside. He slapped at his neck and chest with his hand. He waved to someone else who waved back and even smiled. Yes, smiled. Ten. Henry King was deep in a mine when the worker's canary started to perish. Soon the canary in the cage on his belt, it too, perished. He had time to do one last thing. Eleven. Henry King ate six and one-half pounds of glass before bleeding to death. I believe that's a record, said his friend. <laughs> Twelve. Henry King fell down the stairs in a building nearby. There wasn't a mark on him. You would think he had survived, said a girl. Thirteen. Nobody knew how Henry King had come to be in Little Chute during the Great Wisconsin Cheese Festival, nor why, when the giant wheel of cheddar broke its moorings, he did not at least try to jump out of the way. <laughs> Fourteen. Henry King re realized mid-leap that the other building's roof was, in fact, much farther away than he'd realized. Fifteen. All that remained of Henry King after his fall from the balloon was a Henry King-shaped dent in the ground. Soon that was gone as well. 16. Henry King discovered that the inside of Henry King looked like any meat one might buy at a butcher shop. He smiled wryly and perished. 17. 
Henry King wore a special shirt for people who may be one day kidnapped. They made him more comfortable in day-to-day -day life. He bought special shoes for people who needed to survive shortfalls. He wore an actual helmet. He covered his crotch with a semi-articulated neoprene and steel codpiece. This odd appearance was sufficient to provoke a mob in Buenos Aires, where he was killed while attempting to enter a, a soccer station, stadium. Excuse me. Thirty people stood on his head until it was flat. They left his body alone. Eighteen. Heinrich Koenig, asked the man with the expressionless face as he pointed the Ruger LC9 at his skull. Henry King, corrected Henry King, shaking his head. But the dark-suited man had already pulled the trigger. Thank you very much. And that's our show. Um, I want to just thank one more time the incredible readers that are here celebrating with us. Um, thank you guys so much. That was such a treat. Um, and thank all of you for coming. Um, Skylight has copies of the 50th up front, so I encourage you to grab a copy, or if not that, anything, buy something from Skylight, support them. Thank you guys so much for having us, um, and have a good night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.